This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 245, Enter the Dragon Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. So Derek and I recently thought it might be a good idea to take a, a look back at some films that are celebrating milestone anniversaries this year. And last time out, I nominated The Exorcist from 1973, since it was celebrating the 50th anniversary since its initial theatrical release. And Derek countered with another film celebrating 50 years, Enter the Dragon with Bruce Lee. So we're going to get to our review of that movie shortly. But first, what pop culture have you been able to take in during the last week that you can educate me on, Derek? Hey, Chris. Uh, I have a couple of old ones, a couple of new ones, and uh, a rewatch of a limited series. No no documentaries this week, but I saw some good docs lined up uh, dropping this weekend, so I should have something for next time. All right. This should not take long because some of these movies were kind of garbage. We don't have to waste a lot of time talking <laughs> okay. about them. But um, so from the 80s yes. uh, on the 80s Hollywood Suites channel, there were two movies on that I'd recorded in the last couple of weeks. I finally had a chance to watch. One was great. One was not. The great one was one of my favorites. Rodney Dangerfield in Back to School. Oh, you love that movie, don't you? I yes. love this movie. I have definitely seen this movie 25 times or more. I love all the words, all the dialogue. I love Robert Downey Jr. is is really young in this. He's got like blue hair. He's supposed to be like a, a trouble troublemaker, a stoner guy. He's he's got a small part. It's pretty funny. But Rodney Dangerfield never been better on screen. I love this movie a lot. Uh, you've seen it, I assume. You know, I do believe that I have seen it maybe once all the way through, but it was a long time ago, and I don't remember much about it except he was doing like the funny dive. Yeah, that was that was all the thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, while he's back to school, his son is on the diving team, so he ends up joining the diving team. Anyway, that's a big. I like that movie. It's a, it's, do. I don't know if we call it a guilty pleasure because I think it's a pretty decent movie, but mm-hmm. no, I like it a lot. The other one I saw from the '80s, never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been recommended to me as possibly something we should review by uh, our good fan Greg Martin. I don't know if he was being serious or not, but the movie is Crawl. I've never seen it. That's like I've a, never seen it before. Like an old medieval thing kind of thing. Yeah, it was sort of like a sci-fi space uh, fantasy, like sort of think Star Wars ripoff. Like how can we make Star Wars but not call it Star Wars? It was like they had like swords and armor, but they also, the bad guys had laser guns and the guy had like a magic weapon that was like a five-pointed star thing where all the points curved and it came out to a blade and it's like that's what i remember about it seeing that yeah. blade thing yeah yeah that, that's like in the poster and it mm-hmm. was just like oh my god it was awful it was so bad it was like not even so bad that it was good you know sometimes you look back you're like wow this is campy i could get mm-hmm. it and no no it, it, it passed like don't waste any time on it crawl came went done anyway 
that one wasn't great. Then I just had a chance to rewatch um, the limited series from a few years ago, Chernobyl, uh, on HBO. Uh, Chris, did you have a chance to see this when it came out a few years ago? No. You should definitely take uh, take the time to watch it. It's five episodes or about an hour apiece. Uh, part of the reason I went back and rewatched it, other than I remembered it being quite good, was there's a new show that's just started on HBO called Last The Last of Us. And it's getting very strong reviews, very good ratings. And it's written, the show's main writer is the same guy that wrote Chernobyl. So a lot of the reviews I'm listening to on the podcast and reading, they keep comparing it. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know. So I was like, oh, yeah, let me go back and rewatch it. Watched it again. 10 out of 10 on the Chernobyl miniseries. It was great. Strongly recommend. I think a lot of people have already seen it. But if you haven't and it's on your watch list, definitely move it to the top of the list. It's, it's worth your five hours. Then I had a chance to watch two brand new ones on Netflix. One good, one not so good. The not so good one is uh, probably one that everybody saw on their recommends this week, and it's called You People. It stars uh, Eddie Murphy and Jonah Hill, written by Jonah Hill and someone else whose name I can't recall. Um, the, the little clips they show on the, the preview are amusing, and I thought, you know what? I like Eddie Murphy. I like Jonah Hill. I like, you know, it seemed to be kind mm-hmm. of like a decent movie. Uh, Jonah Hill plays a young guy who um, ends up dating a black girl uh, whose father is Eddie Murphy. And of course, the the main part of the, the main plot of the movie is here's this young, privileged Jewish white boy. And he marries this uh, or he's trying to marry this uh, this young uh, black woman who is like self-made. She's she's had to like overcome obstacles and diversity. And it's just the culture clash between the two families who in their own way um, have their own points of view about the world and just can't see eye to eye with everybody else. And some of it is done for laughs because some of it, when you look at it objectively is quite funny, but a lot of it is just very cringy and you're like, Ooh, Oh, I can't believe they're doing that. Oh no, they're saying that. Oh, it's just like, I, I didn't care for it. And I really wanted to like this, but no, just, it's not for me. I didn't care for it. The performances were decent, but no, wasn't for me. And then the other new one that I watched that we liked was uh, it's a Korean sci-fi film. Uh, it's called Jung E, J-U-N-G underscore capital E. It almost looks like it's supposed to spell out jungle without the L, um, which is what I thought they were going for. And then as I watched it, I'm like, no, no, it's Jung E. And um, it's this uh, sort of they build it as like a futuristic action sci-fi where they're trying to build the ultimate AI robot that they can send into combat and you think oh this is going to be this movie about fighting and stuff and at the beginning there's a lot of like uh, fighting scenarios where they show this AI in battle but then you realize it's got like a fatal flaw and it can't overcome certain obstacles and then the rest of the movie is more the character study of the the scientists that are developing this robot and the like the morality issues around it and, and just the idea of artificial intelligence and how that would affect the world it wasn't as much action oriented as I was expecting it to be, but I actually really liked the direction it, it took. It is in Korean, so you're going to have to watch it with subtitles unless you know uh, and understand Korean. But uh, I liked it. That was uh, it was a winner for me. So uh, a few good ones, a few bad ones this week. No documentaries. What about you, Chris? Do you have a chance to watch anything? So I've got two things I wanted to mention. One is I believe it's pop culture related. It doesn't have to do with movies or TVs or, you know, or shows or songs. It has to do with wrestling. But I've always felt like I was always a wrestling fan when I was a teenager. And I always liked the WWF. And I, I do believe it's part of pop culture. Leaping Absolutely. Lanny Poffo. You know, Leaping Lanny Poffo. He died. So I saw that, just, yes. Yeah. R.I.P. 
And, you know, I don't know if, if, if you know this, but he was Macho Man Randy Savage's brother. I so, did not know that. Yeah, so Randy Savage's real name is Randy Poffo. So they were brothers. And so Leaping Lanny Poffo, they, I remember they rebranded him at one point. They called him the genius. And that was just dumb. He was Leaping Lanny Poffo. But the thing was, he was always like a jobber, you know, a jabroni. He was like one of the guys that goes out there, just gets beat up. Right. And, but he had a, like a shtick to him. Like he'd come out and he would like tell a poem and then he would like throw frisbees out to the crowd and then just get beat up. <laughs> and I actually had a chance to see him uh, at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens once in Toronto and he was uh, wrestling against Dino Bravo. And so I'll never forget it. It still stands in my mind. So Dino Bravo was like this bad guy and he was Canadian as well. I think he was from Montreal. And he wore these like red tights and he had like a little Canadian maple leaf, but it was like, you know, like down, like, you know, like on his scrotum, like right there. Okay. <laughs> anyway. And so leaping Lanny Poffo comes out and he's going, I'm going to tell a poem before, you know, we wrestle. And I remember he said, Dino Bravo is a man that I can't admire until he wears his maple leaf a couple inches higher. <laughs> and then Dino Bravo just beat the tar out of him. <laughs> so, nice. But anyway, Leaping Lanny Poffo died. I thought he was pretty good. So that's one thing I wanted to mention. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, I, I was talking at the top of the show, how we reviewed the, the Exorcist on our last show. So if you haven't had a chance to listen, it was episode 244. So feel free to go back and give that a listen. Because apparently a number of people did listen to that episode of the podcast because I got lots of feedback on it. Derek. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, in regard mostly to my pronunciation of the title, The Exorcist. So apparently I pronounce it exorcist, like eggs, like as an eggnog. And I think I seem to recall you making a remark about eggs when we were recording the show, right, Derek? I think it was something to do with your dad joke if I had to if I had to guess. Oh, because I remember at some point you had mentioned eggs and I was like, what's eggs got to do with this? But I just want to say in my defense, it's not my fault that I pronounce the exorcist like it's a dish at like Denny's or IHOP or something. It's not my fault. It's because I'm Canadian and we just pronounce stuff weird. So and 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 and, and Derek, I, you cannot just tell me that's not true because you don't pronounce it that way because you're not really a true Canadian because you're a Boston Bruins fan. Oh, so, you know. well, I am a Boston Bruins fan. I'll definitely yeah. give you that. But I was going to say, I don't think I pronounce it that way. I think I do exorcist. But you know probably why I say it that way hmm. is because to me that that's like a Dungeons and Dragons term. Uh, so that's that's my familiarity with the word and the term. So that's probably why I don't say it the way you say it. But whatever, it is what it is. I, and I, I mean, hopefully at least people had some constructive criticism about the show. Other than that, did they like it? They obviously yeah. listened enough to know that you weren't saying it the way that, you know, it should be said. But oh, I, I got lots it, of I got lots of positive feedback on the show, just not the way that I pronounce the exorcist. But I just want to say it's because of my Canadian accent. So the thing is, in addition to the exorcist, we're also going to be reviewing a few other movies soon. And I just want to let you know, Down in Oot in Beverly Hills, National Lampoon's Animal Hoose, and of course, A Boot Last Night. So just keep that in mind. And again, it's all about my Canadian accent. You know, not that I think The Exorcist is about eggs. Don't you mean it's A Boot, your Canadian accent? Uh, it is. It's A Boot. Here's your Dad Joke of the Week. Well, since we're reviewing Enter the Dragon this week, I thought that I would do a related dad joke for you. 
Okay. Oh boy, please tell me this is not going to be extremely racist and offensive. <laughs> no, I don't. Think okay, okay, good. I'm, I'm already worried for where this is going to go. <laughs> Derek, did you know that Bruce Lee has a brother who is unable to lie? I, I did not. What is his name? His name is Honest Lee. Honestly, that is a terrible joke. Oh, honestly, Derek, honestly. Roger Moore is James Bond. I think it's really funny that you can say octopusy, but you can't say Hey, this is not cool. I was a real nerd. <laughs> no kidding. Here's a song, here's a song, here's a song. Oh, stop playing that game. <laughs> stop it. I was like, oh my God, what's going on here, dude? Your wife has got great taste in pop culture. They're definitely phony baloney, but you just have to accept them. I mean, she's no Ryan Reynolds. This is what's big now. Back in the day. You can look at me all you want, but you're not touching me because you're a gross old man. Okay, so Derek, in honor of celebrating 50 years since its release, I went with The Exorcist last week. You know, if you're Canadian, it's Exorcist, apparently. Uh, this week, it was over to you to pick a movie that turns 50 this year, and you went with Bruce Lee's Enter the Dragon. Um, you mentioned your pick at the end of our last episode. It really, it caught me by surprise a bit, I will say. Like, I expected you to go with, you know, American Graffiti. I thought for sure that'd be your choice. Yeah, I've never like, seen it, so I've been kicking that around, yeah. but... And I even thought like the Sting or Papillon. So why did you go with Enter the Dragon? Start us off with that. So at the end of the last episode, I sort of leaned on this a little bit. I, I did think about the Sting, which I feel is a great movie and I've seen many times, but not recently. It is but good. the Sting takes place in the 1930s. Even though the movie is 50 years old, it's a movie that took place well before the time in which it was filmed. And American Graffiti, same thing, was from the early 60s, even though the movie is from 1973. So I wanted a movie that was more set in 1973. If we're going to do a movie that's 50 years old, I want it to look like the world did 50 years ago, not the way the world looked 90 years ago, even though it was made 50 years ago. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, yeah so, so when I looked at the list of movies that were turning 50 that I wanted to possibly dive into, this one jumped out at me because in part because I hadn't seen it in a long time. I had seen it once or twice before, but it had been a long time, probably the mid to late nineties. In fact, I have a DVD copy of this, which is what I watched uh, the, for the review. Uh, and it was the 25th anniversary of enter the dragon. So it was from 1998. And that is probably the last time I saw it was when I bought the DVD. I probably watched it the day I bought it. And then maybe one more time within the, the year of that. And there's uh, no way I've seen it since then. So it gave me a good excuse to go back and revisit it. And this is not the typical kind of movie we tend to review on this podcast. And I wanted to sort of venture out of our comfort zone a little bit. And, uh, you know, take it in a slightly different direction and uh and honestly I, I didn't know if you had seen it before or not or or like me if maybe you were familiar with it or had seen it a long time ago but um yeah so let's let's dive right in had, had you had you seen it before i had never seen this movie before so i just want to say kudos bud because even if it's not new stuff you're still educating me you're still finding ways to educate me on there pop culture go. so thank That's you very much <clears throat> okay so i was never a big fan of martial arts movies I got to be honest with the yeah, exception me neither with the exception of kill and kill again from 1981. I love that movie, but I actually really, really, really liked enter the dragon. I thought it was good as a film buff. 
I feel like it's like this movie has its place in history. You know, if you think about it, it was the first martial arts film ever done by a Hollywood studio. And it obviously inspired a whole slew of martial arts films in the 70s. I remember when I was a kid, I used to always uh, watch the the movie channel. I've mentioned that lots of times. And they used Mm -hmm. to play these martial arts movies on there. Every month there'd be like a different one they'd play. And for some reason, I, I even remember the title of one of them. It was called Shaolin Handlock. And they were always dubbed in English. And the only reason I ever watched them at all was there was always at least one nude scene in them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you're 11 years old in 1981, if you're guaranteed to see some boobs, let me tell you, you're watching martial arts movies, you know? Sure. So, but I never really liked any of them, you know, boobs notwithstanding. So going into this movie, I didn't think I was going to like Under the Dragon all that much, but I really, really did. It has a lot more going for it than those other martial arts movies ever did. The direction was stylistic. Bruce Lee was just amazing. The fight sequences were crazy. And of course, there's boobs. So I liked it a lot. So, yeah, no, I, uh, I felt the same way. My wife and I watched together again. She and I probably watched it together when we bought the dvd and hadn't watched it since and after i turned around i said like that was really good like that was way better than i remember and she's like yeah she goes that that movie really does hold up after 50 years like obviously there's things in it that are dated just because it's a 50 year old movie but oh yeah yeah we were both sort of like nodding our head going man that was really i almost texted you because we watched it like two or three nights ago and i was about to text you and say like man this movie is really really good but i knew you said you hadn't seen it before and i thought i don't want to i don't want to taint your uh Mm -hmm. your your viewing thing i don't want you to go into it thinking well it's the greatest movie ever and then be like oh this movie kind of sucked um now did you watch it with one or both of your kids? No, no, I just watched it on my own. Okay, it on my I own. know I suggested that. I thought, oh, maybe your your oldest might no. might enjoy it. So no, I didn't, and I'm glad that I didn't. My wife would not have been happy, <clears throat> and we'll get into that in a bit. But sure. uh, so, just I want to get into some details of the film. We'll just set this up. So it was released in the United States on August nineteenth, nineteen seventy three. It was directed by Robert Klaus, who really didn't do a whole lot else. You know, unless you unless you count the martial arts black exploitation film. Black Belt Jones, starring Jim Kelly from Enter the Dragon. And uh, Scatman Crothers was in that one, too. So was Marla Gibbs from The Jeffersons. And Ted Lang, he was Isaac on The Love Boat. They were all in that movie. But, and I think that was like kind of, like Black Belt Jones was supposed to be kind of a follow-up, if you can call it that, to Enter the Dragon. Or like, at least I think it tried to exploit the success of Enter the Dragon, because they even used the tagline, Enter Jim the Dragon Kelly was on the movie poster for that one. So um, so anyway, but Robert Klaus, so he really only did Enter the Dragon and then Black Belt Jones. And and so he directed this and it starred Bruce Lee, John Saxon and Jim Kelly really in the major roles. It was made on a budget of only eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but it grossed over twenty one million at the domestic U.S. box office and it took in. Over $400 million worldwide. <laughs> it was a wow. huge hit. So domestically at the U.S. box office, it finished 13th for, for 1973 with $21 million, like I say. But a couple things that I want to talk about this movie right off the top. So first of all, the title. I'm not really sure what it means or what it has to do with the plot or anything in the movie for that matter it it sounds a little bit more almost like a 
like a title of a 70s porn whore or something. You Jeez, know? wow. <laughs> like I'm like, and then when the movie opens up during the, the opening title sequence, the music starts playing and it sounds like something from a 70s porno. Almost like... Not quite like that, but wow. by the, by I, could, the way, I could hear the mustache. <laughs> that is, by, the, by the way, Derek, that's one film genre we've never reviewed here on the podcast. And I don't imagine that we ever will. Although I would like to point out behind the green door is celebrating its 50th anniversary, too. So I might just have to nominate that. Just kidding. Although, you know what does turn 45 this year? Debbie does Dallas. We might be onto something here. Uh, could you can you imagine if we did that? Be like, hey Derek, let's talk about the cast from Debbie. Uh, I, I Dallas. think I found it on Disney Plus. Yeah, let's let's talk about the cast a little bit. What's what's Mister Greenfield these days? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, digress. So, Enter the Dragon. One thing that got me about this movie right away, other than the title and then the opening music, it is so obviously dubbed. Oh, yeah. I, I, and that was one of the things that at first was really troublesome, but I got past it pretty quickly. And I read up on it after they said that the entire movie, they had to redo all the dialogue and all the audio afterwards. And I got to think, as you had mentioned earlier, it's budget it had a very limited budget. And um, they had a hard time getting all of the the equipment and the hardware and the cameras and the sound and all that stuff. All the all the hardware they needed to actually make the movie, they they ran into tremendous difficulties. So I think they just realized very quickly on we have the capability of putting audio in after the fact. Let's just do it that way. So yeah, but you you notice yeah. it pretty quickly, and in part, especially in the opening sequence, uh, there's uh like the 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 master of the, the, the master of the monastery, yeah. the teacher, it. it to me, it got, I got the sense that he probably English was clearly not his first language and he probably didn't speak very well. And when I was reading through, they said that he didn't speak a word English and they mm -hmm. had to just phonetically give him the line so that his lips were sort of moving in the right area. And then they just had somebody else do the do the English voiceover. Um, but it, I mean, it is what it is. This this film played like an ADR technician's dream project. But the thing is, let's be honest. Most films are shot without using the original sound. Like, it makes sense not to use it, you know? And there's there's wind and there's all kinds of ambient noise going on. And so the original sound that's recorded, it's kind of useless in most movie productions. If you think of something like Star Wars, it's almost entirely ADR as well. The actors yeah. that are in the costumes, they never got their on-set dialogue into the film. It was all done no, in post. No, of course not. They just ran their voices through synthesizers and stuff, and they used Foley for all the sounds. But the thing was in this film that was a little bit different was they didn't even record sound from the original oh, really? footage. Nope. I didn't know that. All dialogue done in post, and, and they used ADR. And Derek, you've mentioned before, ADR is kind of a pet peeve of yours, right? Sometimes, yeah, if it's if it's done poorly, uh, again, the movie's 50 years old, so I gave it a pass on a lot of that stuff mm -hmm. simply because you can't use today's level of technology and sophistication and say, hey, we can do a better job than that with the tools we have at our disposal. Of course we can. There's been 50 years in advances of technology. Given in the 1970s, like this was even before Star Wars and all those all the things Lucas brought to the table. So it's like I gave it a very a very broad pass on some of those technical issues and i just i just admired it for the rest of what it was i i 
I, I was annoyed by the the uh, the way that sometimes the audio didn't seem to sync up properly. But mm-hmm. five minutes in, I, I I was I got used to it. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to dwell on that part of the movie. I'm just going to enjoy it, and I did. And just for clarity, ADR is automated dialogue replacement, where they basically just loop the film back over and over while the actors sort of re-record the dialogue. They try and sync it all up on the film. It's an old technique. But so the thing with this movie is like, you know, you've got some of the cast, like you mentioned, some of the cast is speaking English originally. So their lips sync up to the dialogue. And then you've got other people in the cast, like the teacher, like you mentioned, who and and Han also later on, who spoke all their original lines in Chinese because they didn't speak English. So the English Mm -hmm. dubbing doesn't sync up. So it. Yeah. It kind of comes off as a little bit distracting, especially in that opening scene, like you mentioned, right? Yeah. But I mean, for me, uh, looking like, again, I'm much like you, martial arts movies, not really my thing. I, I've seen a handful of them when I was younger. They used to be on TV a fair amount. So you'd watch them from time to time. Not really something, not a genre I'm overly familiar with, but many of them, when they aired in North America, were clearly made in China. And they just dubbed over them in English because they're like, hey, how can we make some money off of this movie that is already completed? Well, let's just do a new audio recording, throw it, you know, and then put it in the U.S. market. So for me, the fact that the when the dubbing doesn't look right, like to me, that's just a part of how a lot of these martial arts movies were were presented to the North American audience. And it's almost like that nostalgia factor to me when I see a a martial arts movie where the dialogue doesn't sync up because clearly they're speaking in another language and usually it's in Chinese. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's the way that works. And you forgive it because usually it has incredible fight sequences. And you're like, well, that's what I'm here to see. I'm not here to really, I don't really give a crap about the story. You know, oh my God, you kidnapped this person. Oh, well, now we're going to have a big fight. And then you have this awesome fight scene. It's like, well, you know, just going back to your porno thing. I don't care why they're doing it. I just want to see them doing it. It's like, I don't care why they're fighting. I just want to see them beat each other up. So. The thing is, though, those actors that originally spoke their lines in Chinese, the dubbed voices like really don't match them. No, you're absolutely so, so right. like the teacher at the beginning, like you mentioned, his dubbed voice sounds exactly the same as Marduk from Kill and Kill Again, a white guy. I was going to say, I thought he sounded like a black guy, to be honest. But oh. I mean, maybe that's just me being, you know, and overly then, critical. And then Han, he's this like older Chinese guy and his dubbed voice. It sounds like a, like a TV weatherman from Indiana or something like that. Like it just doesn't match up. But one thing about, I, want, I wanted to, to mention about this, this film, because, you know, it has had a lot of influence you know, on, on, on films after it, this film basically started the craze of martial arts movies in the seventies, like movies like Shaolin oh, sure. Handlock that I mentioned in, in 78, all the way up to my beloved kill and kill again in 1981. It influenced all those. And I think you could actually make the argument that this movie also influenced the bond films of the seventies. Oh, no question. No question whatsoever. Um, yeah, to your point, it partly when a movie's going to make as much money as this one made uh, internationally, it, people take notice. We talk about this all the time on this podcast. Why did they make a sequel? Why did they make a reboot? Why did they do this and that? Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it's a dollars and cents decision. If we do this, we have a better chance of making more money. Well, when you saw how much money this movie made, of course, you're going to look to it for influence and try to make other movies replicate some of the keys for success. 
So with something like James Bond or or many of the action movies that came out in the, the you know the later 70s and early 80s, of course you're now going to have to have these elaborate fight sequences because people clearly liked it. One of the things that I, I uh, always felt this movie was also influential on was the uh, the introduction of the nunchucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was like uh, a martial arts weapon that I had never been familiar with until I saw some of these uh, these movies. And of course, I remember growing up, there was always some kid at the school that had nunchucks and was all like, look at this, I got nunchucks. And it's like, you know, it was because he watched these martial arts movies, had parents who didn't give a crap. We're like, yeah, you want that? Sure, we'll buy it for you for your birthday. And it was like, <laughs> really? But I, I don't know. I think I think this movie also had uh, a huge influence on directors. And, I, and I'm thinking mainly of like Tarantino. I think, you know, Tarantino must have just loved this film and obviously incorporated it into some of his work, especially in Kill Bill and stuff. But yeah. I, I wonder, like, Derek, as a, you're a fan of newer pop culture, do you think Enter the Dragon is still an influence on movies today? Uh, sure. I think uh, not directly, because I think that in the 50 years since this movie came out, so many other movies have built upon the foundation it created. So... You know, if you said something like, oh, well, this movie that came out was influenced by The Matrix and it very well might have been influenced by The Matrix. Then you think, yeah, but what do you think inspired some of what you see in The Matrix? It Like that can trace a line clearly back to Enter the Dragon. So yeah. it's like, you know, it's not that a movie today is looking at this 50 year old film and saying we're doing that. It's they're looking at the other things that have come out more recently and saying these things are great. Let's continue to do that or build on that. And maybe don't realize that it, those things themselves have, if you trace the line back far enough, they're going to go all the way back to this. So I think it's really fair to say that Enter the Dragon is not just some cheesy martial arts movie with bad dubbing. Like there is a lot going on here. And 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 I think one of the most interesting aspects of the film, for me at least, is the cast. So let's talk about the cast. So we'll start with Bruce Lee, obviously. That's where we got to start. Obviously. One of the things that sets this movie apart from all the other cheesy martial arts movies that came out even before, you know, before it out in Hong Kong and stuff. And then, and that came out after it in the States and stuff. What set it apart was Bruce Lee. He himself helped set this movie apart. Mm. And like I say, I have to be honest, I'm, I was never a huge fan of this genre. So I was never a Bruce Lee fan. Not because I didn't like him, but because I just, didn't really know all that much about him, but you know, thanks to you, Derek, and making me watch this movie, I I felt like I, I needed to do some digging on him and find out like what made him so special. Because I think some people just put him on this pedestal, like he's this god, right? So basically, he started the idea of mixing different disciplines into mm-hmm. one set of martial arts, and it was called Jeet Kune Do. Do. And it combines these elements of boxing and fencing and jujitsu with like intellectual concepts. And it takes more of a defensive approach, you know, and it's all about being fluid and responsive and things like that. But it's, it's not just his new form of martial arts that made him different. Holy smokes, was he cut? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. And this is this is in a time. So this is the comment my wife. Well, she she pointed out and I had to agree there 100 percent. The um, the just the the we were saying like his body was as perfect as it could be physically, like just the way he was cut. And you got to think this is before like bodybuilding became a thing like 
you look at professional athletes from the 70s, even into the early 80s, and like they don't have the kind of muscle tone that they have today. No. Because back then they didn't understand the importance of like nutrition and bodybuilding and working the certain muscle groups and all that. Like the knowledge was probably there, but I, I like I remember reading some stuff about Arnold Schwarzenegger where he would he was working out with like basketball players and uh, and their the coaches for the basketball teams were like you guys can't be lifting weights like that's going to affect your performance negatively. So like there was a whole stigma around like the bodybuilding stuff, but you see how, how toned this guy is. And like, you could tell every muscle on his body was as fit as it could be. And Oh my God, this guy looks amazing. And considering his slight build too, right? Like he's, he's not, not that tall, not mm -hmm. that broad, but Oh my God, what a, what a, perfect specimen to see on screen and even when he was i mean half the movies run around with no shirt on i kept saying that i go if i look that without without my shirt on i wouldn't wear a shirt either but um like even when he was at the beginning where he meets with the the british agent and he's like wearing a suit like mm -hmm. even though it was the 70s fashion like my god those collars like what were they thinking <laughs> but uh like I said, I'm like, look how good, how striking he looks in this suit. Like, my God, this man just, his body is in perfect shape. Like, it's, wow. You can't say enough good things about it. And and probably dying young helped feed into the lore of, you know, Bruce Lee, too, right? Well, of course, right? It's that whole, you know, uh, live, live hard, live fast, die young, leave a beautiful corpse. Not that mm -hmm. that was his mentality whatsoever. It was completely accidental death. But I think it just builds on that idea of like, you know, the famous person who dies before they reach their peak, before they reach their prime. And then you have this this legacy, this this uh, legend that grows. And uh, I think that that's definitely the right word with Bruce Lee is legend for sure. And his son, Brandon Lee, died young, too. He was filming the movie The Crow in 1994, he was accidentally shot by a loaded prop gun on set. Mm -hmm. and he died. Alec Baldwin was apparently his co-star in The Crow. Oh, my. Is it Jeez. Too, too soon? Too soon, too soon man. Yeah, too, too soon. soon. Okay. So uh, Bruce Lee started out, his first big role was actually on TV in The Green Hornet from yeah. 1966 to 1967. And that show actually did some crossover episodes with Adam West's Batman. I was going to say, it was a spinoff of Batman, yeah. Yeah, and Bruce Lee was Kato on the Green Hornet. So yep. it, it, that helped make him, make him famous. And then he made a couple of movies in Hong Kong. He made The Big Boss, Fist of Fury, and The Way of the Dragon with Chuck Norris. And all of them were like these huge hits overseas. So Warner Brothers, the studio, kind of sat up and took notice, right? And they were like, hmm, we need to get involved with these Hong Kong studios, all right, and they did, and that's when they kind of collaborated and they made Enter the Dragon. And this was Bruce Lee's sort of introduction to U.S. audiences as a U.S.-produced film, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then he was actually working on a couple of other projects when he died in 1973. Um, so things kind of started when he was doing ADR loops for Enter the Dragon, and he collapsed. And he had a seizure, and he had headaches, so he went to the hospital. And then the doctors there, they diagnosed him as having cerebral edema, which is basically this condition where excess fluid accumulates around the brain, I guess. And then two months later, he started having headaches again. And he went to lay down for a nap, never woke up. He was pronounced dead. And that was July the 20th, 1973. So he actually died before Enter the Dragon was even released theatrically. Yeah. Again, yeah. probably helping to drive word of mouth of the film. 
absolutely the box office absolutely i'm sure that was uh that was a big factor especially in the u.s the the idea because again it was an unknown commodity it was a genre that was not popular but i think the 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 legend around it the mythos the the idea that here was this young guy in the you know the, the prime of his life he could do things nobody else could do this this film is is unlike anything you've seen before and unlike anything you're ever going to see again because this guy's gone this was his one and only shot and then of course you realize he had made all these other movies in in China years before and it's like well let's just re-release all those movies now that he's famous and make more money so yeah there was a lot of things obviously about Bruce Lee that made him unique but I think you have to think that his death sort of added to that mystique. So it kind of immortalized him, you know, as yes, a mythical Yeah, that's figure, a good right? way to think of it, yeah. I remember there was this movie, I think it might have been Canadian, and it was back in the 80s called They Call Me Bruce. Yes. It starred Johnny Ewan, and it was basically, he was this guy that looked like Bruce Lee. So everybody called him Bruce. And then they even made a sequel to it. They still call me Bruce. Yeah. You know, and um, the movies, uh, like, Especially the original it was it was a quite, actually quite a big hit, you know, for such a crappy low budget movie. But it, I think it just goes to show just how much people could sort of cash in on Bruce Lee's legend, you know. But anyway, so moving on from him, John Saxon is another guy. He played Roper, and in the film, he's this gambling addict, and he owes all this money to the mob. I'm assuming for gambling debts. I would assume so. And one thing that stood out to me about John Saxon. He's kind of a weird looking guy. He's got this chiseled look to his face. And I was like, something's not right about this guy. What is it? And then I, like, it hit me. He reminds me of one of those marionettes in Thunderbirds. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a good. Go back and watch any scene that he's in and you will never unsee it. You'll totally yeah. get it. He looks like one of those marionettes. He's like a weird looking guy. And uh he actually went, uh, he went on to do a couple of TV spots in the 70s. Uh, Derek, do you have any guess as to what show that John Saxon appeared on in 1976? Uh, I'm going to guess The Love Boat. Nope, I'll give you a hint. played Captain Rattle in a two-part Wonder Woman episode. It was called the Feminum Mystique in 1976. Okay. Not the Feminine Mystique. No, it was the Feminum Mystique. In case anyone listening thinks I'm mispronouncing it due to my heavy Canadian accent. <laughs> um, then another guy I want to talk about is Jim Kelly. So yep. he went on to play Black Bell Jones. Sort of the follow-up to this movie, if you will. <laughs> well, not really, because he dies in this movie, but um, it's the same director, totally cashes in on the success of this movie. Uh, but other than that, he didn't really do much else. Like, he was also in Three the Hard Way, but that's pretty much it. I liked him in this movie. I think, yeah. I think one of the things that I liked about this movie, too, is how it, it kind of breaks down some stereotypes around martial arts. You, you know, you tend to think... You know, the, this cast of this movie would just be all Asian. But you've got this Caucasian with John Saxon. Well, he's a marionette, I guess. <laughs> and you got this black man in Jim Kelly. And both of them are really good at martial arts. So the thing is, I don't know if it was an intention, you know, by the filmmakers to try and break down stereotypes. Or if it was just because the studio wanted to appeal to more North American mainstream audiences, you know. 
But I think regardless of the motives that, you know, that they had, this multiracial cast helped make this movie just seem like a bit more groundbreaking. Remember, it was 1973, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right there. I think it's they knew if they wanted to make to break into the American market, which was absolutely, from my understanding, a big part of how and why this movie was financed was the idea that this will be the movie that breaks the barrier. They needed to have an American Keeley, like a, a white American man featured prominently in the movie, which John Saxon does. And then by having Jim Kelly in there as well, you're like, okay, it's to your point. It's not just a movie that's about Chinese people that features all Chinese actors that's going to be a much harder sell in 1973 America. But, you know, you have a white guy and a black guy in there as well that are actually, you know, demonstrated in the course of the film that they can hold their own. I think I think that was a big selling feature for the movie. And I think it certainly helped helped its success. I will say that Jim Kelly's afro was epic. Loved it. Oh, my Loved God. He it. looks like Link from the Mod Squad. He looks like he looks like Angela Davis doing martial arts for crying out loud. You know? But again, uh, I mentioned about Bruce Lee, Jim Kelly, man, he looked fantastic. Oh, yeah. Again, the scenes like the non-fighting scenes where the guys are, it shows their backstory and it shows them like coming to the island and stuff like these guys clearly in real life were in phenomenal shape. Oh, yeah. And I was reading how part of the reason these three guys were cast is because they already had some ability as, as competent fighters. And uh, yeah, like when you, when you're that good, Clearly, it's that whole thing. My body is a temple. And even, you know, in the movie, Bruce Lee, he's offered alcohol a few times and his character turns it down. I got to believe in real life he probably didn't drink that much if he was, you know, that fit. But you definitely get that impression. Uh, Jim Kelly coming around. It's like, man, this guy is also in phenomenal shape and just just exudes like style and confidence. It's, again, if I had a body like these guys, I'd exude confidence, too. <laughs> you mentioned style. So one of the things that sets this movie apart it keeps it, you know, from being this schlocky, cheesy martial arts movie is the style of the filmmaking to me. The director, Robert Klaus, it's in, he's interesting because he wasn't some prolific or great director from the 70s. Like he didn't really do much else, like I mentioned before, but he injects a certain style into this movie that totally sets it apart. So I actually, when I was watching, I made a list and, you know, you can add to this as well of some sure. examples of the stylistic elements in this film. So I'll get started with a couple here. The early scene where Bruce Lee and Braithwaite are watching a film about Han mm -hmm. and they're sitting in that dark room. You mentioned where he's wearing the suit yep. and the film projector is going and the light source in the room is like passing through the reels of the film projector and they're spinning this shadow all around Bruce Lee. Very cool. Very cool effect. When the goons chase that girl and they eventually get her in that abandoned shed and she grabs that shard of glass to kill herself, like rather than let them have their way with her or whatever, mm -hmm. the director shows the shard of glass pointing directly at the camera as if she's holding it. Again, I thought it was very, very cool effect. Any stylistic elements that you thought were cool? Um, 
I mean, I don't have notes on it, but I did think the uh, and we'll probably get into it in a little more detail. The 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 fight the final sequence where the fighting all happens in the the Hall of Mirrors. Yes, that to me, like so not only did cool. it, it was it a cool visual, but I got to imagine shooting that took a tremendous amount of prep work because oh. I was specifically trying to see if the camera appeared in the reflections, and I didn't see it. I mean, obviously, I was focused on the the fight sequence as well, but that's always a danger when you have a scene with a lot of mirrors and reflective surfaces. Is how do you make sure that the camera and the cameraman and the the sound operator and all the people that are you know quote behind the scenes aren't actually in the movie and i mean in today's day and age the cameras can be so small and you can digitally erase things that aren't supposed to be there but again 1973 50 years ago you don't have the luxury of doing that kind of thing you need to just get it right with the you need to shoot what's in front of you and it needs to be right the first time or you know you're gonna have to reshoot it so just the 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 know-how and the ingenuity to put that scene together in a way that still makes sense is still interesting to watch uh, is still like action and suspenseful and not actually give away the camera itself to me that that was like the real tip of the cap like man these guys either got extremely lucky or they really knew what they were doing and the end of that scene too where there's that spinning door with han impaled on the pole it's just going around awesome around. like it's just so well shot so a couple other things that stood out to me in terms of style color the way oh, that yeah. this film uses color, especially with the costumes, they tend to be monochromatic and it's like based on who the characters are, kind of where they fit into their place on the island. Like Han's men are all like dressed in white and the visiting fighters are all in yellow. The prostitutes are all in purple, you know, and then there the, was the prisoners are all in black. Right, right. There was one overhead shot of Han's palace with all the bird cages. Yes. And it totally made me think of this, uh, that it had to inspire John Woo when he made Hard Boiled. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. So it, good. It's been a long oh, time. God, I actually so have the DVD. Good. I haven't watched it in a long time. Quite good. And then in that same scene, the entire palace freezes. Everybody in there freezes when Han enters and walks through. And then as soon as he exits the room, they all go back to moving and walking and talking again. It's just like kind of a stylistic element, you know? And then even when the bird cages break and the doves are like flying all around Han and Jim Kelly when they're during their fight, like there's just so many thematic elements in this film. And there's a lot of good scenes in it too. So I would like to talk about a couple scenes in this sure. film that I really liked. So one that stood out to me, I made a note, and I just call it the Jamaican dojo. So at one point, Jim Kelly goes into some dojo and mm. now I just want to keep in mind, Derek, I want to set this up. I know nothing about martial arts or no, should, I mean, neither do I. I, or should I say, I know nothing about martial arts, <laughs> <laughs> but basically my, my knowledge of dojos is limited to like what I've seen in the karate kid and on Cobra Kai. Okay. So I'm no expert. And so I, I freely admit that, but in this scene, there's this dojo with a bunch of Jamaican guys and like one of them. I guess he's like the class leader, the, the sensei or whatever he is. He's wearing this like wool Rastafarian cap. And again, I'm no expert. I don't claim to be. But I have never heard of a Jamaican martial arts guy. J Jamaicans seem a little laid back for martial arts to me. Like I, I would think if somebody started karate kicking in Montego Bay, a Jamaican dude would be like, you know, hey, man, take it easy, man. Stop your karate kicking. Let's just be jamming till the morning light, man. 
you know like it just the whole that whole scene just seemed weird to me i don't know you know what i mean I know the scene, and yeah. yeah, I remember when it when I watched it again. I sort of even said that to my wife. I'm like, "Why are we seeing this scene here? Like it, yeah. it almost felt like there was a part missing. Like they filmed the scene, and maybe there was supposed to be an additional part of dialogue where there was some interaction that we didn't quite get all of, but they didn't want to cut it out entirely. It just to me, it felt incomplete, um, and and un, I don't want to say unnecessary because it was during like the sort of the flashback of Jim Kelly's character, like who he was, you know, where he was going, why, what his troubles were, why he was like, what he'd done before he got to the tournament. So I think they were like trying to establish a little bit of his backstory. So you couldn't really just chop the whole element out. You needed to have it established, uh, establishment, but I, I just felt something, something felt like it was missing. One scene I really liked was on the golf course when the mob goons come there and they try to threaten, um, they try and threaten Saxon to get yeah. him to pay their, their boss yeah. money or whatever. These guys look nothing like mob goons. <laughs> They've got these. Well, I mean, it's 1973. So your, your preconception of what a quote mob goon should look like probably <laughs> the, very different back then. But the cheesy seventies mustaches and those bad suits, they look like they stepped off the set of another kind of film. They just didn't look like Bob Coons to me. So I another one was the praying mantis fight. When they're on the ship mm-hmm. and they're going to Hans Island and they're betting on those two praying mantises in the fight. And it's like, those are really two praying mantises that are fighting yeah. each other. Like it's like an insect snuff film, you know. There's no disclaimer in the credits. No praying mantises were hurt in the making. I was just about to say that. I don't think there was one of those uh, yeah. SPCA things, uh, Humane Society things at the end that said no one was harmed in the film. Yeah. It kind of stuck out to me. Um, so another thing was was Han's army when they get to the island. There's this whole army of martial arts fighters or soldiers or whatever you call them. And they're all like lined up and they're doing these drills, you know, like they're kind of punching in the air. This seems to be a pretty common movie trope in yeah. martial arts movies, but and it's used in my favorite, Kill and Kill Again. Marduk's army does this. But it seems like something that just keeps recurring in, in those kind of kung fu movies of the 70s, but I'm, I'm assuming it started here. You know, I, I don't know, though, for sure. But it, it, it struck me as being like another way that this movie is influential. Well, I, I mean, again, I don't know. I don't know anything about it specifically, but I got to think that that's part of the tradition of the martial arts and the the, the temple and the, the you know, the whole ambiance and, and pageantry that goes on with these these styles of, of discipline, of learning it. Right. And you're not just going in there learn to kick some guy's butt. There's usually a certain amount of philosophy and history that comes with it. So the fact that this is one of the first big movies to show it on screen assuming it is, then yes, you know, people probably looked to this and went, oh, that's, we have to do that because that's how it's done. But I, I can't imagine they made it up for this movie. I'm sure it was drawn mm-hmm. from some cultural reference point that, again, you and I just are not familiar with. Right. So also the scene with the girls where that woman kind of brings around the harem of prostitutes and lets the guys take their pick. She yeah. brings one for Bruce Lee and then John Saxon picks the head girl. And then I like to go to Jim Kelly and he picks like five of them. He's yeah. Like, he's like, I'll take you. Yeah. And you and you and you. <laughs> and, and then they have that big fight with Hans fighters. And then it cuts to the guys in their rooms. And it's like, here comes the nudity. <laughs> it's like, 
you know, like just like those movies I used to watch in the eighties. Also, another scene that I really like was when Jim Kelly's character was fighting Han, because it's like this Han, this older guy, man, he can fight. Yeah. And then oh, it starts out. Han is basically he's mad that someone snuck out at night. Yeah. Because he's like, it seems like one of you was not satisfied with the hospitality last night. I'm totally referring to the prostitutes, right? And he's like, you guys can never leave the island. And then Jim Kelly says to him, bullshit, Mr. Handman. <laughs> it's just such a 70s line. It just stuck out to me. I thought that was really funny. The big scene I think everybody remembers from this movie, and you kind of alluded to it already, is the Hall of Mirrors. Yeah. yeah, very yeah, stylistic. Sure. Hands down, the the most famous scene in the movie. I think. First of all, he, he, like you mentioned, he gets his shirt ripped off, so he's got to. He just takes it off. He's got to do it, you know, shirtless, of course. And then John Saxon fights Han's best soldier and kills him. But then Bruce Lee basically takes on the entire army of of the fighters, and then goes into the Hall of Mirrors, and for an old guy. That guy can really fight. <laughs> like, like these guys can are all very well trained in martial arts. Obviously, I like how he Han replaces his hand with that fake hand with the the metal blades, and he cuts Bruce Lee's face and his chest, and to give him those lines on his. Yeah, body. I think that makes the scene iconic as well. Yeah, and that's whenever you see like any of the stills, like yeah. that's the part you see it from with the with the the bloodlines on his on his chest and on his face. Like, yeah, it's it's. Again, it's visually striking, and and it's another way to um, to separate him from some of the other characters. I mean, I don't want to, I, I mean, I don't want to sound racist, but if you're trying to have a movie in the U.S. where the majority of the cast is Chinese, I got to think a lot of Americans, especially in 1973, are going to have a hard time, di- you know, differentiating between a lot of the people. You get that whole face blindness thing where it's like, oh, I see all Asian people that look the same, and it's like, well. Here's yet another way you can distinguish your absolute star. You you put him in a you put him in a different color. You take off his shirt and you 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 know you have him with these distinct cut bloodlines on it. It's like you're not gonna mix that guy up with the other ten martial arts fighting guys around him. He, he you know this is yet another way to make him stand out from the crowd more than just he does already because he's so good at at the fighting and that he just, you know, physically looks great. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, and it's to your point, it's very stylistic. When Han like slashes at him and cuts Bruce Lee's stomach, the first thing that I thought was, I don't know how Bruce Lee's abs didn't break those metal blades. Like that guy was ripped, you know, it, it reminds me of my own abs. I mean, Bruce Lee has a six pack, but I've got a two, four. I think yours is uh, more of a keg there, buddy. Yeah. And by the way, if, if, if you don't know, 2-4 is Canadian for a case of 24 beers. You know, in case you're wondering what that was a boot. But one other thing about this scene, too. You could tell that they didn't have a very big budget for makeup because yeah. the cuts on Bruce Lee's body just look like strips of red paint. Yeah. And in some scenes, really they sort of seem to shift positions like they clearly had to do this the scene over a long period of time. And they, you know, under the lights and the movement, he was probably sweating a lot. So they probably had to keep reapplying them. And there's a few yeah. scenes where it's it's not as consistent. But you know what? Again, 19, 1973, 50 years ago, I'm going to forgive a lot of it in the moment. You just sort of turn your brain off and enjoy it for what it is. I was fine with it. So I can't believe, like I say, I've never seen this film uh, until now. And I'm, and I'm really, really glad I did. Derek, do you want to give it a rating out of 10? Uh, I would give it a nine all day long. 
I would give this a nine out of 10 as well. I yeah. really enjoyed this. It's one. really good. Yeah. I and felt it really was, held up and it, it was good. Start to finish. Like I enjoyed it on a bunch of different levels too. Like it's kind of a cheesy action movie. It's got bad dubbing, great fight scenes. Like it's got the stylistic direction. It's got boobs. It's got it all. Like everything's going on in this movie. I, I thought it was great. So yeah, no, right. it was really nine good. out of 10, both of us. All right. Yep. Let's have some fun with caveman. There is a common game that we like to play around here, and we're going to play it again. And it goes a little bit like this. Pick the flick. Yeah, pick the flick. You get the synopsis, then pick the flick. You get the year, pick the flick. All right, I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis, and you just guess the film. Okay, it's that. Year and synopsis, guess the film. Okay. Yep. Pretty straightforward. And the common thread, we always have one, is they all of these films have martial arts featured in the film. Okay. That's okay. Uh, not not my easy. favorite genre, but... I know. Uh, that's why I think... But I think some of them are easy. Some of them might be... Okay, you know. good, good, good. All right. So we're going to start with some easy ones. 1984, a martial arts master agrees to teach karate to a bullied teenager. Was that uh, the first Karate Kid movie? Yes, it was. Jumping right up to a newer movie, 2022. A middle-aged Chinese immigrant is swept up into an insane adventure in which she alone can save existence by exploring other universes and connecting with the lives she could have led. Yeah, great film. Everything, everywhere, all at once. And I want to include Chris. Have you seen that one? Yet? I have not, but you mentioned it the other week, so I was like, "Yeah, oh, I it's want to throw that nominated one for Best Picture Oscar, and it has a really good chance of winning." So, and, no, it, it was very, very good. Definitely one of my favorite movies the last year. Wasn't K. Hai Kwan nominated for Best Actor or something in that? Absolutely, film? Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, and Short Round. That's so cool. All right, 1986, a rough and tumble trucker and his sidekick face off with an ancient sorcerer in a supernatural battle. Beneath San Francisco. Uh, is that uh, John Carpenter, um, Big Trouble in Little China? Yes. See, you're doing very well. Okay, 1990. Nice. Four abnormal teenage heroes emerge from the shadows to protect New York City from a gang of criminal ninjas. Uh, is that uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. See, you don't know martial arts movies, but you're doing awesome. Okay, 1995. Three annoying martial artists are summoned to a mysterious island to compete in a tournament whose outcome will decide the fate of the world. Well, that sounds a lot like the movie we just watched. It sounds uh, like a ripoff for sure. No kidding. Um... I, I honestly have no idea. No idea. It's Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat. Ah, All right. A couple okay. more tough ones. I want to challenge you here. 1983. After helping the local police with some horse thieves, a Texas Ranger aims at a drug lord with arms trade as well. They're interested in the same woman and they're both into martial arts. Well, I got to think if it's Texas, it's probably starring Chuck Norris. Mm, that was the clue. Texas Ranger. Uh, so. 1983. Yeah, I don't really know Chuck Norris movies very well. So 
Honestly, I can't even think of one. Don't know. It's Lone Wolf McQuaid. Oh, okay. I've heard of that one. Yeah. Got it. All right. 2000. That's a little bit more in your wheelhouse. All right. A Chinese man travels to the Wild West to rescue a kidnapped princess. After teaming up with a train robber, the unlikely duo takes on a Chinese trader and his corrupt boss. What was the year? 2000. Jeez. Uh, did that one have Jackie Chan in it? It might have. Uh, I can picture the movie. I just can't think of the title. It was called, I don't know. It did have Owen Wilson as well. It I can't did. think of, I can't, yeah, I can't think of the title. I don't know. Shanghai noon. No, yeah. No, you could have given me all night. I never yeah. would have got that. 1988, an American martial artist serving in the military decides to leave the army to compete in a martial arts tournament in Hong Kong where fights to the death can occur. Yeah, this one I knew was going to be on your list. Bloodsport. Jean-Claude Van Damme, you nailed that one. Yeah, no, that's a good one. 1994, Colonel Guile and various other martial arts heroes fight against the tyranny of dictator M. Bison and his cohorts. Oh, uh, was that not uh, Street Fighter? Jean-Claude Van Damme, you nailed another one. Yeah, the only reason I know that is I just listened to a podcast where they were talking about why that character's name was Bison. And I was like, why would I ever need to know this? And look at that. I put it in practical application right here to get the question (laughs) right. Nice. All right, the last one, 1981, when Dr. Horatio Kane is kidnapped and is forced to create an army of martial artists. His daughter, Candy Kane, is the only one who could help. She enlists the help of Steve Chase to save her father and the day. Oh my God, that sounds so terrible. I have no idea. That doesn't even sound familiar. It's not terrible. It's kill and kill again. My One of oh, my geez. favorite movies of all time, man. Man, well, you should have mentioned it at least once in this podcast. I might have got that. <laughs> Go figure. All right. So over the last two weeks, we've reviewed two films that celebrated their 50th anniversary. So I think it's over to you, Derek, to, to pick a, a newer film, a newer movie for us to, to yeah. watch. And then we'll come back and review next week. So, so what would you like me to watch? All right. Watch? So I, I needed to just pick something that was fun and okay. something that I had seen before that I, I hope you might like. And maybe you've even seen it, but... Uh, I'm going to go with the nice, easy popcorn flick from 2017, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, starring The Rock. Oh, that's like a remake of the one that had Robin Williams back in the 90s, which I never saw either, but... It's actually a sequel, which is explained explained in the course of the movie. You don't need to have seen the first one, but they they cover enough of it in the first 10 minutes that you're good to go. But this was really good. I really enjoyed this. They made a sequel to this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the first one and uh, it's available on Crave. I double check. So you should okay. have no problem finding it on the streamers. Jumanji, I can watch it with my kids. I, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, starring The Rock and Kevin Hart and uh, Jack Black. Uh, no, it's really good. And uh, I hope you like it. And we'll come back next week and talk about the the ups and the downs. So I'm going to watch this Jumanji. Was it Retur- Return to the Jungle? Welcome to the Jungle. Welcome to the Jungle. Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle with The Rock from 2017. And then we will come back. And that's definitely more <laughs> newer than these 50-year-old movies that we've been watching. So that's a nice contrast there. So we'll come back next week and we'll do that. Until next week, 
Uh, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of myself and Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 